Hi, I'm Michelle. Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome to our podcast, Books and Beyond. So, on this episode, we spoke to the very talented Suhit Kelkar, who I also like to call Jack of All Trades. Yeah, because he writes poetry, fiction, non-fiction, and he also writes about stand-up comedy. And he's also doing an Indian aesthetics course with my sister. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, how does he do so much, right? So that's exactly why we call him on the podcast to find out. And it's really funny because we both know him independently. I met him at a workshop conducted by Bound. Yeah, and I know him like through mutual friends. And it's so cool how we found out so much more about him on this podcast. Yeah, like his creative process, his influences, why he likes mythology and how he's even used it in his poetry book. Yeah, and like how does he manage to watch the same comedy sketch again and again and again? I know, he goes for one sketch a week. <laughs> Crazy, right? So we found out about how he does so much with his time. Yeah, and we had a great time talking to him and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So Hit, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi guys, uh, my name is uh, Suhit. I am a journalist, poet and fiction writer based in Bombay, India. I write mainly poetry at the moment and I'm working on my second poetry collection. Uh, I review books for a living. Uh, so it's a very book-centric sort of a focus, a very unidimensional focus at the moment. And yeah, your poetry chapbook also came out last year. Yes, it did. It's called The Centaur Chronicles. It uses uh, a character from Greek mythology the centaur, to explore themes of otherness and exclusion and discrimination in today's world. Both Tara and I just loved the book. Thank you. So, yeah, and the other thing that you didn't mention, but uh, which we read about, is that you are a stand-up comedian enthusiast and you actually go to a lot of shows every week. So we were just wondering, you know, uh, since you see so much comedy, who is your favorite stand-up comedian? Uh, about that, uh, it's 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 interesting you should raise that point because I myself uh, go to so many shows in Bombay that uh, quite a lot of stand-up comedians say they have a complex on seeing me because it means they have to write new jokes all the time because I've heard all the old ones. And they say, why don't you just get up stage and perform? And I say, no, that's not my aspiration at the moment, at least. Uh, I just like laughing a lot and I like comedy a lot. So I go to a lot of these shows. But my favorite at the moment would have to be, it's a tie really between Kunal Kamra and Aditi Mittal because of their very, very pungent and opinionated sort of comedy. I know you said you don't want to ever perform, but have you ever thought, since you write in so many mediums, have you ever thought of writing humor? I actually really aspire to write satire, to write humor. I'd like to start off with a humorous column in the daily press or the weekly press or the monthly press for that matter. But eventually I want to write uh, humorous fiction as well. So that is what definitely one of my aspirations. So it's interesting that, you know, in stand-up comedy, like how the comedians can see the reaction of the audience. So by writing humorous fiction, like how do you picture the reader, you know, receiving your work? Have you thought about that? I actually haven't thought of it at this stage. But just like in poetry, you have a certain meter or a certain radar, you know, where you can know that something is going to land well. In the same way, you can sort of develop, I think, a clinical approach to your jokes, to the humor that you eventually end up writing, in which you figure out, okay, this is working, this is not working. And of course, the role of alpha and beta readers who will 
look out for you, who will read your manuscript and look out for you is very, very important. So I suppose I would use that method there as well. Actually, that's something that we do at Bound is, you know, we give beta reading to writers who want to know where their manuscript is going. But I also wanted to speak about, you know, we mentioned humor writing, you mentioned poetry, and then you mentioned that you do book reviews, which is the best job ever. I think all of us book lovers would love to do that for a living. But so how did you make that switch from journalism to now poetry and then fiction? So one day I just got out of office after filing a story or maybe I didn't even have an article to file that day. And I just walked out in the neighborhood of Lalbagh where the office was located. And I was just looking around at the newly burgeoning high rises and suddenly a line came to me. And uh, I don't know why, but I felt compelled to just take out my phone. This was the era before smartphones. Open the SMS tab and type that line in before I forgot it. It was only later that I would realize that that line has actually potential to be the seed of a poem. I won't say it was a great poem. I don't even know if I wrote that poem eventually. But this sort of thing kept on happening and it kept on happening. And I was compelled to make something of it. Otherwise, I would implode, really. So, Suhit, which form are you most comfortable in? Like, And which form scares you? Like... As a writer, I too dabble in different forms. And I know that, you know, you go into a completely different zone with each form. So, yeah. I think that uh, every form has its own challenges and every form challenges me in a different way. There are different fears associated with every form. With poetry, the number one fear is that, is it beautiful enough? Is it uh, significant enough? Does it improve upon the blank page enough? With journalism, you are always worried about defamation. Whether if you're critiquing somebody, not criticizing, but even if you're critiquing somebody in these extremely hypersensitive times, you are worried about civil and criminal defamation. You're also worried about accuracy. Is what you're saying, because what I do is opinion-based journalism. It's book reviews. It's not hard fact. It's my opinion about stuff. So you are always worried about, am I being reasonable? Or is it that I am let us say, micturating upon someone's hard work. And you don't want to do that. So I also wanted to know is, uh, because we are personally interested in this, is uh, what makes a good book review? There are a number of things. First is, of course, comprehensiveness. You have to give the reader a taste of the book's contents without slaking the reader's appetite. Because if you slake the reader's appetite in the review itself, he or she will not buy the book. And you're doing a disservice to the writer. And then, of course, one tries to build up a relationship with the reader so that the reader keeps coming back for more and more and more. Which was the last book that you reviewed and that you absolutely loved? The last book that I reviewed was called Good Economics for Hard Times by the 2019 Nobel winners, Banerjee and Duflo. And uh, it is everything that an economics book should be. It is extremely simple and at the same time it is rich in nuance. It explains complex economic concepts in such a way that a 10th grader would be able to understand. 
I've actually read their poor economics and you say that really well that they blend economics and uh, behavior and psychology to create something that isn't dry and I found the same I found it extremely fascinating so I think both of their books are must reads for sure so you know you know so much about so many different things and in a conversation that we had prior to this interview you mentioned that you were back from a spirituality retreat and coincidentally enough you are also doing a course on indian aesthetics which my sister is also part of and it's a one year course so i wanted to know you've had so many different experiences you do so many things that are beyond writing so how do those things sort of inform your poetry and fiction i think that everything that you do in some way anything that touches the core of you is going to come out in your writing in some way or the other and of course spirituality philosophy aesthetics these are all things that deal with the human heart as it beats so all of these are finding a place in some way or shape in my writing it makes it that much richer yeah it does so your works uh, usually deal with a lot of mythology so we were wondering like where does this fascination with mythology come from i think it comes from my childhood I grew up as a, an outsider. I grew up in an intentional community in the sense that my mother was a rural doctor. So we were posted in a remote village which itself was very small but also we were outside that village in a separate gated community. So for me the quest to belong to a particular I won't say tradition but to a particular stream of thought is extremely compelling and mythology for me provides a way to belong to something it is not necessarily a geographical idea of belonging it's just a way of belonging to an idea because in ideas lie our homes and in mythology there are markers of belonging there are archetypes that tell you what you are there are so many riches there which provide a sort of feeling of belonging to us we find it really interesting that most of your work is not autobiographical because uh, especially debut works of writers is autobiographical so how did you you know think of going beyond that i think i owe that to my training as a journalist where you are told to not completely cauterize yourself or surgically remove yourself from the story which you are writing but to maintain a certain arms length away from it also i am a very private person i don't necessarily want to let complete strangers in into my inner life directly not because there is anything to hide but because i am not entirely sure that that will achieve any aesthetic or artistic purpose i don't think that merely laying bare my emotional peaks and troughs in front of a reader i don't think that necessarily makes for good literature so one of the poems that we really really loved in the book was the first poem which was the origin poem of the centaur and that made me want to ask you about your own childhood and sort of the influences in your childhood that led you to become a writer were there any people in your family who were into writing 
you'll be surprised to know that uh, there was absolutely no one in my immediate and extended family who was into writing. My mother's side, my grandfathers were very solid traditional office workers. One of them was a railway engineer. The other was a banker. My father is a chartered accountant. My mother is a doctor. I myself am trained in commerce. I have a degree in commerce and then a diploma in journalism. So absolutely no formal training in writing at all. But when I was growing up, I was... It so happened that a friend of our family gifted me his comic book collection. And I used to spend hours every day just reading those comic books and enjoying. Kids can do that, you know. I was enjoying the interplay between the image and the text and how they related to each other. But just like there are origin stories to everything, I would attribute my origin stories to those comic books. And there was Mandrake, there was Phantom, there was Flash Gordon, there was Bahadur, you know. There was a little bit of Archie in there as well when I was growing up. So so all these really helped a lot. Yeah, I remember reading Archie's and like falling in love with it. So that was like my first experience with reading, I would say. What about you, Tara? My first experience with reading was um, I was five and my mother gave me The Secret Island by Enid Blyton. I think I was mind blown. Yeah, so we all have those books that sort of inculcate you into the world of books and reading and writing. And they're so memorable, those experiences. So yeah, so it's such a memorable experience to, you know, get those books for the first time and be introduced to those worlds. And I wanted to know, are there any books from, you mentioned the comics from your childhood, but are there any books from your adult life that have really stayed with you? Oh, there are so many. One would definitely have to be Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Because although it is a World War II novel, I also find metaphorical parallels between the situation in the book and the human condition in the average Indian city today. And uh, the second would be the collected poems of Arun Kolatkar in English, which is a blood axe London publication. I just, it's a mind-blowing book. It's remarkable because that guy was a remarkable poet. He was genius. No doubt about it. So these are the two books that I that I'm indebted to in a sense. I haven't read them, have you? I'm going to definitely pick them up after the way that you've described both of them. No, I haven't. But yeah, it's on my to be read list. Like so many books on the to be read list. So it's interesting that you mentioned the snake metaphor. And that reminds me of one of your poems that I absolutely loved. I think it was called A Woman Speaks to an Unborn Child. And in that, you sort of describe, uh, maybe you can describe it better and tell us a little bit about it. I wrote that poem because part of my current obsession is with the environment. Part of my work in progress collection is eco-poetry. So I was reading up on climate change and global warming and various scenarios in which, which don't look good for us, none of which look very good for us as a species or for substantial numbers of us. And I was extremely distressed because a lot of this is within our control as individuals, but also a lot of it is beyond our control. We need systemic, catastrophic systemic changes. So it was from a position of deep remorse and individual helplessness that I wrote this poem. So that's really interesting, uh, Suhit. Would you have any book recommendations about people who want to know more about 
these issues or you know I recently read that uh, there's an emerging genre of sci-fi which is cli-fi climate change fiction there are a number of good books on climate change in fact there are so many of them so many good books okay so many well-argued well-researched books that one is hard put to recommend anyone but uh, the book that I have is by if I'm not mistaken Oxford Press I forget the name of the writer because it's on my Sundoku list. <laughs> I'm reading a lot of books for the collection and that one is going to be slotted sometime next year, probably. So yeah, what is a Sundoku list? So Sundoku is the pile of books on your bedside table that you feel remorse about not reading yet. That, and I, I think that happens to all of us. We have like huge piles of those beside our beds. Yeah. And for me, the remorse is doubled because I have to read all of them if I'm to make sense of my, if I'm to gather material for my upcoming poetry collection. And that book is in there. But also, instead of books, see, the problem is that uh, climate change books are a cold medium. Once they're out, they're out. Whereas the science of climate change, the discoveries of climate change, and the accelerating process of climate change is outpacing books. So I was just not bothering with the books so much and looking at what the current journalistic press is saying about climate change. That's a good start. You can use the theories of climate change through a book, you know, which explains how it began. But for the current status of climate change, you have to read up a lot of newspapers and magazines and websites, which is what I do. It's really interesting how you made that transition from a full-time journalist to uh, writing about arts and culture. So I was wondering if you had any tips for our listeners who want to pursue journalism, and especially who want to write about the subjects that you write about. How do they go about building their portfolio and what is it like actually out there in the freelancing world for a newcomer? So I would suggest that they gain at least five years of experience in the corporate journalistic world first for no other reason than A, it gives you some amount of financial stability because you will need a nest egg if you're going to freelance. Secondly, it teaches you to write to a deadline. And it teaches you to write to a deadline every day or every week to sustain that over an indefinite period of time, develop stamina. And you'll need a lot of stamina as a freelancer. Thirdly, it gives you contacts in the field and it gives you knowledge of your field, which is also very essential if you are going to be Ouroboros, the self-sustaining snake. If you, if you have to do that, you have to know how to sustain yourself. So you need all of these resources ready at the tip of your fingers if you're going to be a freelancer. Also, be very, very ready to struggle. The freelance world, I'm not saying it doesn't pay, but initially it will not pay you as much as you were earning in your job. It's a given. You will have to chase vendors for payments. They will pay you three months later. They'll pay you six months later. I actually stopped working for a very reputed Indian magazine, which I will not name, <laughs> but because they paid me one year later. Wow. Without interest. So technically, I lost some money because I could have earned at least 7% interest on that, but they paid me a year later. So now I am not a pure freelancer. I have a retainership with a, a traditional media house. They pay me a fixed amount every month and I review books for them. And that is where the majority of the finance comes from. And I also do passion projects, you know, stuff that I really want to write about. So I'll write about it for news magazines where I still have contacts. That's how I do it. Pure freelancing is very, very stressful. 
you're talking about your struggle as a journalist uh, we were wondering about your struggle as a writer like you know how do you deal with writer's block and rejection if you could just share with us so i define writer's block as per the writing coach christopher scanlan who is also a journalist and novelist in the united states i think he's based in florida if i'm not mistaken he says that writer's block arises when your standards are higher than your ability to meet those standards so then he advocates something very point blank you know you know americans are very to the point he says lower your standards <laughs> i don't believe in that so when i have a writer's block i have had it for years so that my ability is finally rose to the point where i could somewhat meet my standards so i i don't have any reassuring thing to say about writer's block except that either you lower your standards and then gradually keep raising them higher or you wait or and develop yourself until you meet those standards what about rejection i deal with it very philosophically you know because sometimes you're rejected by a particular magazine or by a particular publisher because you're not good enough and you have to face up to that on the other hand they may reject you because their tastes are different than yours so that then it's not a question of competence so you have to be philosophical about it and you have to just take it in your stride but obviously it's it's not fun it's hard i mean i think that perspective about writer's block is something that i've never actually heard before found it very fascinating and i really like your approach towards it uh, i wonder what our listeners approach to it will be and i had one last question for you is what advice would you give our listeners who want to get published so i would suggest read 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 a lot of stuff read to understand what you like and read to understand where you want to go and read the places that you want to be published in please those editors are very very overworked they get hundreds of submissions every month or every reading period don't inundate them with stuff that you know is not going to work for them so i would suggest to read mindfully so so with it sounds like you do a lot so how do you manage your time i struggle to manage my time but it's a very fluid process it's a day to day process in the mornings i'll do the paying work you know and in the evenings i'll do the poetry and other non paying work that's broadly how i do it and also i need to get out of the house to start working in the house i know i'll procrastinate there's youtube there's netflix there's all these beautiful beautiful distractions that that get in the way so i need to get out of the house and then when i do that i know i'll start working and do something productive that's how i do it really So yeah I mean I think Netflix is sort of the bane of all of our existences <laughs> uh, but you sound very disciplined and I actually agree with what you're saying is that you need to have a dedicated workspace yeah and even a dedicated routine I think it helps a lot yeah like to even set deadlines for yourself so we would really like it if you could read an excerpt from your poem for our listeners thank you it'll be a pleasure it's a short poem from my chapbook the poem is called the centaur will not be explained away my wildness irks you yet not for you the luxury of explaining me away of binding my limbs with lambent metaphors and sibilant similes of leaving me entombed in the crystal of a holy symbol i warn you name me freak but you will not write 
my story for me, not strip me of nuance. The way I look is a bone stuck in your throat, a fingernail poking your eye. If only it were that simple to dismiss you as a short-sighted bigot, but it never is. Should you take matters into your own hands, my hooves will meet your skulls. I sneer at your other threats that daily renew themselves against my life and limbs. Is this the ordeal of Satyr, of Dhanav, of liminal others lying beyond the pale, to be killed by mobs, to be replaced with garlanded statues? Thank you. That was a wonderful narration. Thank yeah, you. that was lovely. Thank you, Sohit. If we could ask you what inspired that poem, Sohit? So many things with the current political scenario in India and across the world, uh, the way that uh, disenfranchised people are treated, not just excluded, but also physically violated or physically mistreated. That was what inspired this poem. So thank you so much, Suhit, for being a part of our podcast. We love talking to you. You had such fresh insights and you certainly made me think of things in a very different way. Yes, it was amazing. Like I learned a lot, Tara, and I'm sure that our listeners will have a lot of takeaways as well. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's always great talking to a friend, Tara, and Suhit has been a big supporter of Bound. He attended one of our workshops, and today we got to find out so much more about his process and his work. So next time, our guest is the most famous book blogger in India, Vivek Tajuja. I can't even contain my excitement because I really want to know, firstly, how he wrote his memoir, So Now You Know Growing Up Gay in India, but more importantly, how he reads so many books a month. So what did you think about Sohit's episode? Please do write in with your thoughts and recommendations. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Bound India. 